Normally at this point, I'll ask you to pull out your NIV Bibles from the pew in rack in front of you or the Bible that you have already. But this morning we're projecting the English Standard Version up on the screens so that uh, Pastor Yuri can share from the text that he believes is, is most uh, helpful to us and most accurate to the text. So I would um, invite you at this point to direct your attention to the screens and uh, follow along as I read from Isaiah chapter 60, verses 15 to 18. Isaiah 60, verses 15 to 18. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age, You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that the Lord and that I, the Lord, am your Savior and our Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall shall be no more heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that as... Yuri comes to speak that he would be speaking your words and that your spirit will bring life and truth. We thank you for your word. We, we, we believe in your word. Help us to understand it and apply it in just the way you intend. Be with Pastor Yuri now as he speaks. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Mark so eager to get up here that as I was coming up and I had my water bottle with me, I spilled water all over my Bible. (laughs) But it will dry. We've got fans blowing. I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open. If uh, If you don't have your own copy of the scriptures in front of you, uh, and would like to follow along in the Pew Bible, which I, which I would encourage you to do. It is found on 724, that is page 724 in those Pew Bibles. <clears throat> there are parts of the Bible that we tend to neglect. Some of these parts of the Bible we find tedious. Other parts seem rather obscure. And then there, there are parts that are neither repetitive nor hard to understand, but we find them kind of depressing, to be honest. So we just avoid them. Now, the section of Isaiah that we've been studying for the past few weeks is not like that at all, of course. Many of the phrases are familiar. Although we may not always know where we've heard them before, we're happy to have now an address to attach to them. And the words and the sentiments are incredibly uplifting. And yet, 
If we're honest, even these phrases that no one would have any trouble believing are sent directly from heaven, we can find hard to relate to. They're, they're just so lofty, so far off, so future-oriented. What do these words have to do with real life? Life in the here and now, life that's taken up with school and work and family and politics and pandemics and any number of more pressing concerns. Well, if we would only muster up the courage to engage with the depressing parts of the Bible, we'd actually quickly discover the answer to that question. Take Isaiah, for instance. Now, most of us only encounter Isaiah in the kind of top 10 inspiring verses lists that we seek out when we're feeling down and need some encouragement. And it's understandable because Isaiah's greatest hits are truly great, truly elevating. But maybe you've had this experience as I've had. You've been inspired by these few amazing passages, and so you've tried to sit down and read the book of Isaiah from the very beginning. You find you get bogged down in the very first chapter. Or maybe you got through this first chapter and finally came to something familiar and encouraging at the beginning of the second. And that lift, although it's kind of short-lived, kept you slogging through the rest of chapter 2 and then chapter 3 and, and, and then chapter 4 and then chapter 5. And maybe, just maybe, if you're an unusually intrepid Bible explorer, you made it to the awesome depiction of God on his throne in chapter 6, where he calls Isaiah to be a prophet. And Isaiah responds enthusiastically and humbly, here I am, send me. But then you read God's words of commission to Isaiah. What does he say? Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And to make sure Isaiah doesn't miss what he's being commanded to do, God then doubles down. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Sounds like a good evangelism slogan. <laughs> And then you read these words and you flip ahead and you discover that you still have 60 more chapters to go and you cry out with Isaiah, how long, O oh Lord? <laughs> these soaring heights that we find in chapters 60 and 61 are the exception in Isaiah rather than the rule. When we read the book of Isaiah in its entirety, it becomes quite clear that Isaiah's main task was not to talk about 
the end times. Isaiah's concern is very much here and now. Isaiah's preoccupation is, is almost too painful for us, too much a part of our current selves to bear. Isaiah's burden is sin. And more specifically, the consequences of sin and what we can do about it, which is precisely nothing. Nothing. And then Isaiah laid out his book in such a way as to fulfill this very strange calling from the Lord. He lays out his book in such a way to frustrate his readers, especially his readers who are in high places, who get kind of testy when little people like Isaiah point out their flaws, which they prefer to think of as just foibles. Frustrating for the powerful who are usually able to shut out or shut down the uncomfortable charges and strident voices that they don't want to hear. Frustrating for busy people like you and me who can always just close up the book, change the channel, or, or at least flip ahead to the good parts to keep on hearing, perhaps, but never to understand. To keep on seeing, maybe, but never to perceive. Until we accept this truth about what Isaiah is doing in his book, we will always find these incredible words at the end of the book ring hollow, false on the ear. They'll always sound like nice platitudes. They, they may even give us temporary relief from what ails us, but they will never catch us squarely between the eyes. They will never penetrate to our hearts. They will never sustain us through the disappointing moments of life. How does this relate to the passage that we're studying this morning? Well, let's take a look at the first phrase in verse 15. Do you ever feel forsaken by God? Do you ever feel hated by the world? You might, actually, but you'd be an exception. Not many people do, at least not for very long. And even if you do, don't you resent that feeling of being forsaken and hated? Could you consider the possibility that the world's hatred of you, that God's having forsaken you, may be entirely deserved? If not, then it will never mean much to you that eternal majesty and lasting joy are available to you. And the word that begins our passage, whereas, will just strike you as so much legalese. This whereas, at this beginning of verse 15, whereas, and then there's four insteads in chapter 17. These are the words we kind of skip over, right? Whereas, instead of, therefore, thus, behold, 
These humble words are magnificent words. Whereas, instead of, and these are the words that Isaiah uses to organize this entire fragment of poetry. In Hebrew, this word that we have translated as whereas is actually just one word, tahat. Normally, as I said, we translate it into, into English as instead or instead of. So we could read verse 15 this way. Instead of being forsaken and hated and neglected, I will make you majestic and a joy. Did you catch that? Did, can you hear how in this little word instead we find the whole gospel? Instead of getting what we deserve, we're given what we don't deserve. Instead of death, we're given life. Instead of punishment, we find forgiveness. Instead of suffering alone in our hatred and despair, we inherit a forever family of love and meaning. Instead. Instead of. This is just a plain way of saying a fancy word, redemption. Instead of slavery to sin, we become adopted, bought by the blood of Jesus. Instead of bondage to corruption, we obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And as if that weren't enough, this passage promises us even more. Now, as Pastor Mark has been making very clear to us, the you in this chapter refers not primarily to me. It doesn't refer to you primarily or to any other individual person, but to Zion. And Zion, you'll remember, was a historical city that David built on an ancient hill, a hill that's very significant in biblical history. It's the hill on which Abraham almost sacrificed his son if God had not provided a ram instead. Zion can also be a metaphor, but it's much more significant than that. It's much more than an idea. Zion is a spiritual reality, which means it is more real than any material or historical reality. Will it become a historical reality, a material reality in the future? We don't know. But right now, it is a spiritual reality, which has always been its primary meaning. Zion is the place where God dwells with his people. Another way of putting this is that Zion is the everlasting city of David. Or, or better yet, Zion is the everlasting city of the son of David, Jesus. Or better even than all of those descriptions, we find in Hebrews 11 verse 10, Zion is the city that Abraham was looking forward to. A city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God himself. 
Zion is the place where God dwells with his people. It is Zion that in Isaiah's age, as well as ours, has often been forsaken and hated with no one passing through. A place that's unwanted, a place that's dangerous, a place you would avoid. Think Mogadishu, Darfur, a meth-infested tent city. Zion in Isaiah's age was forsaken and hated. A visible city visibly besieged sometimes, but always invisibly beset, always full of trouble. And from the very beginning of his book, Isaiah over and over again calls the people of Zion to look around and assess their situation rightly. Now, when we humans see our society sick and in mortal danger, just as it was definitely in Isaiah's day, and as it certainly is in ours, we tend to immediately ask, what can we do about this? The symptoms frighten us so much that we usually prescribe a course of treatment before we understand the illness. When Isaiah and his friends peered over the walls of Jerusalem, they saw devastation everywhere. Foreign armies in their camps. Farms pillaged, garrisons occupied, fortresses destroyed, towns ravaged. Beloved kinsfolk stripped, shorn, chained together and led off into exile. That is, when they were left alive. When they were still recognizably human. When their skin had not been removed by the inhuman torture, which was the standard operating procedure of the Assyrian invaders. I'd encourage you to read the description of this in Micah at the end of the first chapter of his book for a chilling summary of what the people of Jerusalem would have seen and heard going on outside their walls. Micah lived through these same events that Isaiah did and was closer to where the horrors took place. Maybe because of his relative distance, Isaiah was slightly more discreet, slightly, telling us in the first chapter of his book that Jerusalem was the only place left standing in Israel, comparing it to a forlorn little hutch amid the rambling chaos of neglected vines. Well, turning from that ghastly sight, they might have fixed their gaze inside Zion's walls. There they would see something that was somewhat better at least insofar as the walls were still standing and the people were still alive. But the violence and corruption inside the walls made the situation in the city almost as bad. In fact, if you read Micah chapter 3 for his take on it, you'll see that Micah considered that it was Israel's leaders, 
the nobility and the false prophets who supported the leaders. It was them who were responsible for that inhuman cruelty unleashed by the Assyrian Empire. And not only that, there was an obvious symbol of internal decay that loomed over them from the top of Mount Zion day after day. The increasingly shabby hulk that was once Solomon's glorious, shining temple, whose ancient golden doors the king had recently stripped to try and hold off the invaders, a payoff to buy themselves some time. And that was the, only the latest example of plundering the temple to pay tribute to foreign kings. Even when Jerusalem wasn't under siege, the temple often lay neglected for generations, accumulating a whole menagerie of idols. Well, the other phrase that frames our passage is the one that we have translated in the ESV as, I will make. I will make, or I will appoint. We find it first at the end of verse 15, and then again in verse 17. And just as an aside, for this reason, verse 18 isn't structurally a part of this section of the poem. But I've kept it in because thematically it flows very naturally, obviously, from verse 17. But within this frame, there is the repetition of one other phrase, which is also significant. In verse 17, we twice have the phrase, I will bring. And we'll get to that in a little while. But here's what's significant about these phrases. I will make, I will appoint, I will bring, I will come. You might have been a little alarmed when I said earlier that we can do precisely nothing about sin. The conventional wisdom is, of course, that when you see a problem, it's your duty to roll up your sleeves and get to work. And especially if you are the one to make the mess, it's your job to clean it up. We all know this. And that's precisely the logic that most of the kings of Israel followed generation after generation. When you see something going wrong, you fix it by whatever means necessary. But throughout his book, what Isaiah emphasizes is exactly what all of God's people have realized throughout the ages ever since Adam and Eve. In fact, this is the thing that distinguishes the people, the thing that distinguishes the people of God from everyone else. The only thing that is different fundamentally is that we realize that the problem that brings suffering, the problem that results in our death, the sin problem, is bigger and nastier than any mere human could possibly deal with. We cannot do anything about it. We cannot make ourselves better. But, and this is Isaiah's whole point, God can. God does. God has done. 
since Isaiah wrote his book. God initiates, God engages, God acts. God acts to save us and to redeem us, to save us and to redeem us. That is, God is the only one who can act for us, and he not only saves us from the curse of sin, but he redeems the whole of our lives. As astonishing and essential as our rescue is, he does not only rescue us. He does not only deliver us and then leave us as we were. He makes us, appoints us to something far better. We, we the called out ones, the gathered people of God, Zion where God dwells, have a divine appointment with him. To what? To what is our divine appointment? Well, the ESV tells us, he will make Zion majestic forever, a joy from age to age. Which is good, but it isn't quite right. The Hebrew word we have as majestic is actually not an adjective, but a noun. Like the word joy in the phrase it's paired with. This is not a description of how Zion looks, but a state of being. True Zion is majesty and joy. God is appointing us, not as individuals, but as Zion, to embody magnificence, to be delight. Well, that's an outrageous claim, if ever there was one. So now it may be time to look at the other edge of this frame. We read in verse 17, I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. But a more literal way to translate this might be, I will appoint peace, shalom, as your overseer. I will appoint righteousness as your taskmaster. Now these words, overseer and taskmaster, should call to your mind the time of Israel's slavery in Egypt. These were the guys who were cracking the whip as they trudged the bricks without straw, trudged the mud. But the reference here is probably more to the building of the temple in Solomon's day. Because the Bible tells us that in that construction effort and in countless other projects in Jerusalem afterward, it was standard for kings to use forced labor to accomplish their designs for the city. It was a practice that was deeply resented. In fact, it was the refusal of Solomon's son to reform that practice which led to the civil war that split the kingdom in two. The divine appointment on this side of the frame gets at the motivation of the people of God. 
In other words, it's one thing to construct a magnificent city that delights all your visitors on the backs of your residents. It's another thing for the city dwellers themselves to be so full of magnificence and delight that the city practically builds itself. True Zion is not built out of fear and violence, guilt and shame. God's gathered people among whom he dwells are directed by his peace, his shalom of inspired well-being and blameless well-doing. God's gathered people are moved by their desire to live according to his righteous ways. Thus, violence has no place in Zion. Zion's people gain access to the city by falling down and worshiping the only true God. Zion's people walk her streets in full assurance of the eternal salvation that the son of David won for them. And as an aside again, since the name Yeshua, Jesus, means salvation in Hebrew, the second last line of verse 18 reads, You, Zion, shall call your walls Yeshua. You shall call your walls Jesus. This points, of course, for the people of God to a redeemed perspective, to a transformed perspective, to the kind of faith that is so rare in our world that those who have it are certainly seen as gullible, even as irresponsible, seen as weak, like Hezekiah, who couldn't face facts and make allies like the rest of the kings before him and bring in those idols because that's part of the deal. These people are seen as crazy like Isaiah to trust in this ancestral desert god outmoded for centuries. Don't you know that God is dead? At least he hasn't shown up in a very, very long time. But this transformed perspective is the one that we find at the very center of our passage, in the fourth of seven pairs of lines. The fourth in seven pairs of lines It's in verse 16, the second half of verse 16. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Now, the first thing you may have noticed, aside from the silly picture, is that I changed the word and in the ESV to then. If you have an NIV in front of you, you'll know that this is an acceptable translation. It's in the Pew Bibles there, for instance. Then you will know, you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer. And I think that this then fits better with the overall structure. 
and with the message of this passage. This structure that I've been talking about, I don't usually talk about poetic structure much, but this structure links knowing the Lord with about the unlikeliest transformation that you could imagine. In a few short words, Isaiah paints this bizarre image. It's designed to grab our attention. Zion is now a nursing infant sucking at the breast of a Gentile king. That's weird. And lest anyone is tempted to burden this text with any modern preoccupations, Isaiah's intention is to portray a scene that is clearly impossible, an image that is in shockingly poor taste. He used the image of Gentile queens nursing Zion's children before, and that was bad enough. He did it for a very similar purpose, so we can confirm that he intends for us to make the same link here. That was back in chapter 49, if you want to check it out. But Isaiah is now upping the ante. He makes it the idea of a Gentile queen nursing a Jewish child for people in that time would have been distasteful enough. Now Isaiah ups the ante. He makes it even worse. He invites us to imagine a cruel emperor of the kind that he was familiar with who would sooner flay his victims than be seen as approaching anything like effeminate. This, these men now so concerned for the well-being of Zion that one of them would quietly and patiently nourish Zion from his own body. What do we make of that? I don't know. But yet, isn't that what's happened on countless occasions in the history of Zion? Over and over again, God changes the hearts of the most wicked among us. He saves and redeems the least likely candidates. And if God could gentle such a man as Sennacherib, for instance, if he instead of sending the most determined tormentor to his well-deserved torment, has mercy on him and changes him to such an extent that he's trusted as a benefactor, a guardian even of Zion? Couldn't God, wouldn't God not do that for you as well? Can you imagine it? Whatever you think of yourself, whether you are someone who feels hated and forsaken, or whether you're somebody who feels proud, perfectly at home in the world, what is all this sin you're talking about? Could God, wouldn't God, reach into your heart as well? Think about it. When God's people are joined and helped by their enemies, Isaiah says, then you will know in a deeper way that the Lord is your Savior, your Redeemer, too.
The message of this passage is that to know that the Lord is your Savior, to know that the Lord is your Redeemer is the key to the city. To embrace the mighty one of Jacob who has removed your sin, to serve this mighty one according to his appointment is to enter in. And as we walk around our city, Zion, as we interact with the members of our church and our friends who are believers, and we see all the problems, as we look within our own hearts and see that the problem inside is, is nearly as bad as the problem outside, we'll often feel ashamed. How shabby Zion looks. How compromised, how fragile it's become through the choices that we've made, through the choices of those who've gone before us, through the choices of people around us who we have no control over, but who we are joined to by the Holy Spirit of God. How could we make such choices? How could we keep making the same mistake, treating the symptoms instead of the disease? I don't have an answer for that either, but God does. Again, the beginning of verse 17. That little phrase, I will bring. Now immediately our mind jumps to supply, provision. God will give us things. Yes, that is what it is saying. But the verb is not really the verb to bring. The verb is to come. Instead of bronze, I will come with gold. Instead of iron, I will come with silver. Instead of wood, I will come with bronze. Instead of iron, I will come Instead of stones, I will come with iron. What do all these materials mean? Well, it's interesting. Of course, he's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about Zion. He's talking about the temple. So he is definitely making reference to things within the temple, materials made to build the temple, tools, implements that are a part of the temple service. And if you read, I was tempted this, this week, in fact, it was on my original order of service to have us read through the entire book, uh, chapter of First Chronicles 22. Um, I'm sure that you're happy you've dodged that bullet. Um, but what you, if you, when you read, I read through <laughs> the biblical history for you this week, and what's interesting is that David stores up countless, just an infinite, nearly infinite amount of gold and silver and wood and and iron and bronze. But as you go on, that collection, of course Solomon uses it to build the temple and it's glorious and it's wonderful, but as you go on, each generation seems to just take away a little bit, just a little bit 
a little bit more, a little bit more. An invader comes, we'll just strip the doors a little bit, or we'll give them those golden shields that we had lying around from Solomon's day. They're not really useful anyways. Who uses gold on a shield? By the time we get to Joash, a few generations before Isaiah, there's no more talk of gold, no more talk of silver. We're putting bronze on the doors now. We're, 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 we're not using silver anymore. We're using iron nails. Iron's an interesting substance as well. We think of the Iron Age as this great technological innovation, which of course it was. And we think, well, iron must have been better than bronze. But no, it wasn't. Bronze was much more sturdy, much harder than iron. But iron was cheaper. So if you had that technology, it's kind of like plastic. If you had that technology, you would be a successful country. People, the countries, the empires that could make things with iron were more successful in battle because they could arm all of their warriors with iron swords instead of wooden picks and things like that, pitchforks and stuff. So bronze, iron, these are the kinds of materials that you use commonly for useful tools, for weapons, use them somewhat in building. But what was the whole idea of building a temple with so much gold and silver? What was the idea between, behind having shields of gold, weapons of, uh, of gold, which would be entirely useless in battle? It was because their trust was not in themselves. Their trust was in the Lord God. And every time they stripped away that trust in God, more invaders came, and so they thought, oh, we need to make more bronze and iron weapons. We need to strip all this useless gold off the temple and replace it with something that'll just hold it. So when God comes, first of all, that is the point. That God comes, and with him he brings what is pure, what is holy. We no longer are so pragmatic. We begin to understand that we are special in his sight and in his presence. And we affirm what Paul was to write a few hundred years later, that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not swords and shields and bombs and barbs. But the weapons of our warfare have divine power. Do we believe that? And when God comes and he brings bronze for our wood, iron for our stone, what does this mean? I mean, we just got rid of the bronze and iron, right? Why do we want more of it? Wood and stone, this is material that represents the old world. It's brittle material. It's natural material. It's material that's worked instead of forged. God brings to us the bronze and iron forged in the fire, rendered. It's the new. It's the sturdier. It's the flexible and malleable. He makes us flexible and malleable. 
A country in Isaiah's day that only had wood and stone was a country that was characterized by lack because all you could do was go out into the hills, cut down some trees, as we read about in Haggai, we talked about last year, maybe quarry some stone. But a country that has bronze and iron, well, now you got a going concern. When we see things as they really are, when we accept that the deadly disease that we suffer from is sin at its root, and that the only effective course of treatment has been provided for us by Jesus, the Lord is present. Zion is rebuilt. We offer alloy, mixed material, mixed motives, and the Lord comes and makes of us pure golden vessels. Instead of dull iron nails, he binds us together like the shining silver tenons of the tabernacle. He burns our brittle and rotten wood and he forges us into bronze pillars as Paul calls it, the church is the pillar and the buttress of the church of the world, of the truth, sorry. In crucibles of crumbling clay, he makes of us something useful. I'd like to close with a word from 1 John, which I think is appropriate. John writes, whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us. We bring our bronze and our iron. God brings his gold and his silver. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Otherwise, if God doesn't save us, we have no confidence on the day of judgment. If we've only tried to just make ourselves better and better, all hope is lost. Love by God's grace is perfected with us so that as he is, so are we, Zion, in the world. We're going to pray together in a moment, and the end of the service will be a little different from normal. As a benediction, I'd like for us to sing together um, it's, a, it's a tune that's familiar, but I'm going to have Arlene come and play it through once after I'm done praying um, and sing as a benediction Psalm 67 together, and then we'll be released. Let's pray together. Oh God, show us your mercy and bless us by your grace and cause to shine upon us the brightness of your face so that the whole world over may truly know your way. So that all of creation will bless you always. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. 
Let nations come rejoicing. Their songs of gladness raise. Oh God, we ask for your blessing on our brothers and sisters from KCW who are going forth from us this week. What an inspiring endeavor that they're engaged with. What a tangible project that displays your glory, displays how you have been working in their hearts. They bring, Lord, their bronze and their iron, and you are replacing it with gold and silver. May you, O Lord, prosper their work as they go. And Lord, may you give us a sense, a true sense of our sinfulness. Lord, we ask for your mercy that we would be those who hear and understand, that we see and truly perceive. Oh, Lord God, may we truly be Zion in this place and time. We ask it in the name of the Son of David, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, and our Redeemer. Amen.